Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last night, after a week of protests, Puerto Rico's Governor Ricardo Rosseo resigned. Luego de escuchar el reclamo, hablar con mi familia, pensar en mis hijos y en oración, he tomado la siguiente decisión. Con desprendimiento, hoy les anuncio que estaré renunciando al puesto del gobernador efectivo el viernes 2 de agosto del 2019, a las 5 de la tarde. The governor's resignation is a landmark event for Puerto Rico, and we're going to talk about how it's affected the politics. Josian Santiago is a mayor of Comarillo, a mountainous municipality in central Puerto Rico. He belongs to the opposition party to Governor Roseo, and he says here is how it's going to affect the future of politics in Puerto Rico. Definitivamente cambia, seguro que sí, porque el pueblo se dio a respetar. The political situation definitely changes, of course, because the people wanted to be respected. And now there's a call to all politicians. They now know that if they don't conduct their business correctly, the people will demand respect and will take control of the situation. Like the people of Puerto Rico did today. The people will demand transparency in the House. The people will demand that the new governor won't let situations like this happen with impunity. That there are punishments for those who break the law, and that he or she creates a new government that is clean from corruption and is more transparent. That's Josian Santiago, the mayor of Comarillo in central Puerto Rico, talking about the resignation of Governor Roseo and what's happened to politics now in Puerto Rico. With me now is Omar Torres Courtright. He's executive director of the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center. It's promoted Puerto Rican culture in Chicago since 1971. As a member of the Puerto Rican agenda, Omar helped lead their hurricane relief initiative and long-term development plan called Rescue, Relief, and Rebuild, which is ongoing. Great to see you, Omar. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell me a bit about how what happened yesterday. How did you watch this? What what went on for you? Yeah, so pretty much every single Puerto Rican I know was uh, glued to their phones or television. Uh, even if you were working, you were looking because since since 5 o'clock Puerto Rico time, uh, the message was supposed to come out. So uh, we decided to uh, join this party that was already happening, a viewing party that was put together by the Chicago Boricua Resistance and we went there and uh, the atmosphere was incredible and of course we stayed and had to wait a very long time but it was very much worth it and and it was a very much a celebration of the Chicago Puerto Rican community is just such a historic moment. What was so galvanizing about this? Because we see a lot of language and rhetoric in politics these days, and uh, this was stuff that was going on behind closed doors. It doesn't even go on out in front of the microphones where so much of the charged rhetoric goes on these days. Uh, what, what about this was so galvanizing? Yeah, I think that just the fact that uh, there was so much of uh, uh, political party politics that were being played in that chat during, uh, you know, regular uh, business hours of the government and the fact that they were using the government apparatus to persecute people and to and to really go after uh, the political opposition. Uh, and then, you know, just these private uh, sector individuals that were in the chat and were getting all this privileged information. And uh, just, just uh, there's a whole host of uh, crimes that have already been identified uh, and, and impeachment is suppo- was supposed to start today, yeah. actually. And because they received the actual letter of resignation of the governor, now 
finally impeachment proceedings you know i guess it's an it's an on issue right but uh but yeah it's it's the, the, definitely the center for investigative journalism in Puerto Rico when they came out with this chat of almost 900 pages they changed uh Puerto Rican history forever and and we were able to see Puerto Ricans uh, were able to see uh, our politicians in a different light that we had never seen before and uh, we first the governor said that we are we, I did something improper I didn't do anything illegal but then the Puerto Rican Bar Association came out and when they had a report that there were seven potential crimes in the chat that were referenced and and that is um that is where the rubber meets the road absolutely absolutely and uh i think that that's uh that was the the first message that was coming out as if people couldn't read or if if people it just would take them too long to read the 900 pages so he so, did do so much insulting of every in any category on the island. Yeah, that, seriously. That, that, uh, I mean, there was almost there was no, plenty of improper. Yeah, no, no sector that wasn't offended by it. Uh, but also, you know, the deaths after the hurricane, uh, the the language around literally shooting up a political opposition uh, party member. You know, so uh, where do you think this leaves Puerto Rico today? I, you know. Hosean Santiago seemed to say, well, this is going to bring a new accountability to politics in Puerto Rico. Um, the person that's coming to power is um, is a woman and her uh, – her, she doesn't seem like she can do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, there's a lot of problems that we can go into and to, in terms of, of, of the character of Wanda uh, Vasquez. But uh, more than anything, yes, there it is a new day in Puerto Rican history of Puerto Rican politics because just the the, the capacity of a, 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 an island that has suffered colonialism since the 1500s uh, to finally uh, the people go out into the streets and ta- and really take out the the, the governor. Uh, this is a completely different turn of events. And uh, if you think about it, in Puerto Rico right now. We don't know what the newest census is going to say, but people are saying that in Puerto Rico, there's maybe three million people right now, and it could be lower than that. So literally almost a third of the population uh, took the streets. So that's that's a lot to say, you know. And uh, so I think that because of the power of the people at the example that is being set, uh, a person like, for example, Donald Trump, probably would not survive Puerto Rican politics today, uh, which is very interesting because in the colony, we were able to take a guy out that uh, I, th- I think that a lot more has been proven already about Trump and his dealings than what has been proven about Rosselló. <laughs> it is an interesting comparison uh, yes. that, that, you know, here we are in an era where we're tender negotiating uh, and, you know, impeachment's not going to go anywhere, all that. But um People took charge in Puerto Rico. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think it, it just when you give that taste to the people that they have the power to change things, I think that really right now this new character, uh, Wanda uh, Vasquez, is going to face an incredible uh, opposition. And it's because she has a long history of of, of uh, problematic behavior to the point where uh, she was involved in a case where she used her position to put improper pressure on on an individual that had uh, that had robbed at a at a uh, immediate family 
of of her, right? So that was a, a very uh, pivotal moment when we were able to see the kind of person that she is and the type of pressure that she's willing to put on these uh, on using her position in an improper way. But then, just recently today, they came out with a text uh, conversation that she had with the secretary of. Um, of uh, the, the uh, Hacienda uh, Department in Puerto Rico. Uh, and basically what she is saying is, please don't send me more information about this case because I don't want to have to go after the first lady. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine, you know, the head of justice saying, I don't want to do my job. Please don't give me more information. I don't want to have to investigate uh, the, the first lady or, you know. And this is all, all related to the hurricane relief effort and Unidos for Puerto Rico, the private foundation that was raising money after the hurricane. Oh, that gets very ugly. Yes, yes. Omar Torres Courtright is executive director of the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center, promoting Puerto Rican culture here in Chicago. And we're talking about the resignation of Puerto Rico's governor last night and what it means for Puerto Rico and what it means for the rest of the U.S. Um, I wanted to ask you a, a question about t today. It's known as Constitution Day. And this has some, you know, this is a day with some heavy colonial baggage itself. Yes. Yes, of course. Uh, it, it is. It has not escaped. The irony has not escaped us. Uh, uh, there's just so many uh, uh, issues that, that right now have to do with this relationship of Puerto Rico with the United States. And we feel that this is a symptom. You know, this, this, this behavior is also a symptom of this colonialism. And, and I think that um, also it so happens that today is also the day uh, there was a very dark moment in Puerto Rican history uh, that was the Cerro Maravilla case that happened in 78. And that obviously is also in the minds of Puerto Ricans. And these were people that were persecuted and killed because of their ideals. So the fact that the people stood up to the government in such massive numbers and now today those two dates, not only the day of the Constitution but also Cerro Maravilla – it's it's very you know it's very telling it's it, it's something that calls our attention for sure. And Constitution Day used to be known as Occupation Day. Yes, in Puerto Rico before yes. the 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 folks renamed it. So yes, this is something more positive. Yes, yes. Um, I wanted to ask. Uh, I, some questions about the nature of the protests and what was happening in the protests. You're wearing a Puerto Rican flag, black T-shirt, and there were a lot, if people saw pictures in the newspaper of the protests, there were a lot of black Puerto Rican flags. I didn't see a lot of explanation of what that meant in the press. What does it mean? Yeah, so there's this collective of artists in Puerto Rico called La Puerta, and they were the ones that created a beautiful image of the Puerto Rican flag that is right in the heart of old San Juan. And uh, that became a, a tourist spot. Like everybody would take a, a selfie with the flag. So it became such a well-known attraction in old San Juan that uh, when, as soon as the Ley Promesa uh, came into effect and the Fiscal Control Board was uh, uh, appointed in Puerto Rico, uh, the artists went and painted the flag in black and white. Uh, and they basically promised to keep it in black and white until uh, this, uh, you know, situation of the fiscal control board gets resolved because it's really an appointed uh, party or it's an appointed group that is not 
uh, being elected by the people of Puerto Rico and has full uh, authority over the island. And this was instituted by President Obama to deal with the debt crisis and yes. it controls all, it's closing schools, it's doing all all the stuff. All the austerity measures that are being, and just uh, it, so it, these artists were calling attention to that and then the, the black and white flag became a symbol of resistance and resilience in Puerto Rico and you see many people from many different political ideologies that are now busting out the black and white flag. Well, what does that say to you? Does this change? Because previously, it seems like the polling was always pretty steady on, you know, on political identity, whether it's statehood, augmented uh, commonwealth status or independence. And does that change any anything? I think that there's definitely uh, this generation has a very, a very strong feeling about decolonization. And I think that that word is a unifying word in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, and, uh, and I think that that's our way to, to finding a solution to this problem. I think that most people in Puerto Rico agree that, we, that the current relationship with the United States does not work. I wanted to say some more about the uh, music and culture that went on. Uh, there was uh, kind of a super group of uh, contemporary rapping musicians from Puerto Rico who had a song, and it really galvanized people. Yes, yes. I wanted to play a little bit of, of it. Of and course. tell me who, is, who the uh, musicians are on this. Cause it's yeah, so this one is uh, Afilando Cuchillos was, uh, was put out by Bad Bunny, uh, Residente, and Ile. Here, the, here it is. Llegó la hora de un combo de miles en motora patrullando las 24 horas. Boricua decora con el puño arriba a la conquista. No nos va a meter las cabras un pendejo de marista. Según este compadre, mi maíz junto con todas las mujeres son igual de putas que su madre. Tú no eres hijo del cañaveral, escoria. Tú eres hijo del cabrón más corrupto de la historia. Disculpen mis expresiones. Pero Boy, that's a song. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to give you the explicit lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what are they? What did they try to say in this song? And it really was uh, a big deal. It, yes, it really. Yes. Got so, like the, the song up. is extremely critical of the corruption, basically, in Puerto Rico, and the fact that these three characters get together. We're talking about, uh, in the case of Residente. Uh, you know, multiple Grammy uh, winner. In the case of Bad Bunny, probably the biggest new artist. star, new yeah. star in Puerto Rico with the trap movement and everything. And then Ile, recent Grammy winner. Uh, uh, of course, they all like Residente and Ile coming from the same background. And then the just adding the projection of Bad Bunny, who like now has so much following uh, is really incredible just the fact that they were able to bring so many people together and and they had a, a lot uh, a lot to say and a lot to uh, there's a lot to thank them for in terms of their message that was able to get to so many people right and they, they really mobilized and when bad bunny cut short his tour and said i'm coming home and we're gonna go in the streets that was a big deal yes it was a big deal and it made us think about the resources that we have as puerto ricans and how we use those resources right <laughs> um the creativity was seen everywhere i there was a great video people might have seen of grand central station and uh people dance puerto ricans dancing in grand central station and i mean all of it every square inch of it it was beautiful yeah it was beautiful 
wonderful and it's using Plena, which Plena has been Afro-Puerto Rican music is present in all of our protests and it has gone in so creative. People are writing incredible new Afro-Puerto Rican music that goes with this fight, with this struggle and we have seen it in Chicago, we see it in Puerto Rico and it's just beautiful. What are you doing tonight? So tonight actually I'm convening a group of artists. Uh, we want to talk about art and activism and uh, the role that artists have in this new day for Puerto Rico. Uh, I'm going to be publishing that very soon, the details about this event at the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center uh, Facebook page. Uh, so if you want to uh, join us and join this conversation, you're more than welcome to. And there's a parade today at 4.30? Yes, yes. Uh, there's a celebration parade in Humboldt Park uh, that was uh, convened by the Puerto Rican Agenda. Uh, and uh, we're going to be there as well. So, yeah, definitely it's going to be very intense. The last few days and the next few days are going to be very intense. <laughs> All right. We'll go out on an old-timey uh, Puerto Rican song that people were singing. It's a um, – I forgot the name of it. En mi viejo San Juan. En mi viejo San Juan, yes. And what 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 is what strikes a chord about this song? Well, that is the most unifying song of all because everybody knows it by heart, and uh, it it also speaks about the diaspora and leaving the island and how painful that can be. So, not only do the locals love it uh, that live there every day, but uh, the ones that live outside, like me, really listen to that song as a, as a unifying, you know, uh, song for all Puerto Ricans. Omar Torres Courtright is executive director of the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Center. It's promoting Puerto Rican culture in Chicago since 1971. Great to talk with you, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Tarde me fui hacia extraña nación, fue lo que hizo el destino. Pero mi corazón se quedó frente al mar en mi viejo San Juan. Adiós. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the history of unaccompanied children in immigration detention in the U.S. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 2019 marks 25 years that Worldview's brought you human stories from at home and abroad. Before Worldview goes off the air this fall, we wanted to bring you some selections from our deep archive. Jacqueline Baba joined us on February 1st, 2000, to talk about the cases of 65 undocumented children detained at a secure immigration facility in Chicago. About 20 years ago, there were around 500 undocumented children detained at any given time in America. Now there are nearly 13,000 immigrant children detained in the U.S. Jackie Baba now works at the Harvard Law School, but at the time of this interview, she led the human rights program at the University of Chicago. I began by asking her how so many children ended up in immigrant detention. There are a lot of different types of... um 
children in these facilities, many different nationalities and quite a wide age range from really very young, five, six, up till just under 18. The majority, I would say, cluster around 14 to 18 years old. Um, They seem to be evenly divided between boys and girls. Um, And I think the main clusters of nationalities are uh, kids from Latin America, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Mexico, um, and kids from Asia, China, India, Sri Lanka. But there are other kids uh, from Somalia, kids from Iran, kids from all over the world. And how do they get into circumstances where they're not with their parents? Several different ways. Um, Some kids are separated during travel. Um, So it's some unfortunate incident that has led to the child being alone. Some kids are actually with their parents when they arrive, but then they're separated by the immigration authorities who detain the parents separately from the children. So there was an occasion when I visited one of the... uh, Facilities, and I saw this very young seven-year-old uh, Sri Lankan girl. And um, when I asked why she was there on her own, uh, I was told that her mother was being detained somewhere else in the same city, but they'd separated them. Um, so that's another way in which they come to be on their own. But the main way they come to be on their own is simply that they set off on their journey alone, either because the parents choose to Um, send them away to safety. They think this is the best thing for the child or on rarer cases because the child decides they are going. They're fleeing. Um, In some cases, they've lost their family or they don't know where their family are. They're separated from the family by war and other circumstances, so they just take off. Um, So it's a range of different circumstances. And so there are about 2,000 of these children right now around the United States. Um, I think the figures are not clear because unlike other countries, unfortunately, the immigration authorities don't keep proper statistics, which is one thing that uh, advocates have been asking for. Um, But I I think the figures at the moment suggest that on any given day, there are about 500 children in uh, detention and that over the space of the year, it seems that roughly 5,000 children um, are apprehended, as, as the immigration put it. So it sounds like there's a lot of turnover. They either send them back home or, or, or what? I mean, do, do, do some of them get asylum in this country, even though they have no parents here? Yep. Um, You're right that there's quite a lot of turnover. Some of the kids only spend a relatively short amount of time in detention, um, maybe even just a a week or two, though some, I must say, do spend as long as a year. Um, Some kids are fostered out to relatives, and um, some do get political asylum uh, when they can demonstrate that they have a well-founded fear of persecution. So in some cases... um, the cases that these children have are not dissimilar from adults' cases. They may say that they come from a minority that's persecuted and so they, they qualify for asylum or they may have been politically active as kids. Uh, if you think of situations like the Intifada or the uprisings in Soweto, there are many kids who are actually involved in political activity who are likely to come to the attention of the authorities. So some cases are like that. Um, And some kids qualify because they are related to famous or wanted political opponents. And so they get the retaliation because they're family members. Is it easy for them? Is it more difficult for children to prove that than it is an adult? I'm 
heard a lot of difficult adult cases and get legal re representation. How do you do that if you are a, a child? Yes, it's much harder for children for two reasons. Firstly, it's harder because the law is set up with an adult standard. The way in which asylum has been adjudicated and conceived of has been persecution of adults. And so circumstances which are peculiar to children have so far generally not been considered to be the basis for an asylum claim. So that's one way in which children have an additional hurdle. Um, the second way, of course, is that they're children, and so negotiating a strange, complicated foreign system is, is just that much harder. Um, they don't have easy access to attorneys. They don't have easy access to counselors. The children who are in the detention facilities really um, have no one to turn to. So this is a big problem for them. And it's the INS that detains them, basically. Yes. Is that typical in countries, uh, other countries, or is that unique to the U.S.? As far as I know, it's unique to the U.S. No other Western country detains children in these circumstances at all. Um, they obviously provide shelter for them, so they have government-funded facilities in which the children are housed and kept, but they are not in detention. And I think one of the most problematic aspects of the situation in this country is this fundamental conflict of interest. You have the immigration authorities, the INS, both charged with enforcing immigration law, therefore investigating whether the kids have a right to stay here, possibly refusing them permission to stay, possibly even taking steps to deport them on the one hand. And on the other hand, you also have the INS charged with caring for them, nurturing them. And so um, advocates argue very strongly that these two functions should be separated, just like they are in other countries which have equally pressing immigration problems. Um, the, the argument that the immigration authorities put forward for detention is that the children are either a risk um, or at risk. Um, a risk because they may be part of gangs or they may have some some criminal connections or that they may be at risk uh, from smugglers and others who are out to get them. Um, but I think those arguments have no weight at all. Um, if children are charged with criminal offenses, then sure, they should be, de be detained. But if they're not charged with any criminal offenses and there isn't any evidence of criminal activity, they shouldn't be preventively detained. And as for um, detaining them to protect them, I think that's, that's just a ridiculous argument. There are many other ways that you can protect children without locking them up. So you only have to think of kids in contested custody cases or children who are at risk of abuse and neglect. You don't lock them up to protect them. I imagine there's a range of situations in detention facilities across the United States for children? What uh, what are the circumstances? How are they detained? And how is it similar or different from somebody who has committed a crime? Um, there's a huge range. And at one end of the spectrum, I think the, the facilities are reasonably humane. They're run um, by people who are trying to do the best they can in difficult circumstances. They are not um, punitive. And they are sort of geared to helping the kids as much as they can. Um, and these are some of the purpose-built shelters that exist in a couple of areas. Um, I mean, even those, I should say, are not ideal because there are very inadequate facilities for teaching the children, for example, for medical assistance or for taking them out. But at least they are not punitive. 
Um, at the other end of the spectrum, the kids are detained in, in jails, and some of these are really very bad. Um, they are detained with uh, juveniles who are convicted of criminal offences, and these are really harsh uh, correctional facilities where kids are shackled and handcuffed if they're moved from place to place, where they even have punitive um, regimes for disciplining kids. And there have been cases uh, reported where children have been put in bare cells with simply a bed and a Bible to punish them for very minor misdemeanors. I'm sure that the real reason that the INS um, locks these kids up is because they want to send a message to people out there <laughs> that this is not an acceptable way to try and get into the States. And so um, this is supposed to be part of a deterrent um, strategy. In other countries, do they put these children in foster settings and and have them try to get away from them and immigrate into the country illegally and try to become street children or whatever they would become? I asked this question when I was doing some research in some of the other uh, countries where there's a large influx of unaccompanied minors. And what I was told is that a small proportion do disappear, um, but it's well under 10%. And... Um, Everybody I spoke to said, well, this is just, you know, one of those inevitable consequences of this social problem. But the general um, attitude was that it's completely intolerable to lock up innocent children. So I think the general ethos was so strongly that you can't detain, incarcerate children who are not charged with any criminal offending, that even if there is some slippage or some proportion of kids who, 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 who just sort of go off, uh, that was considered to be one of the, one of the inevitables um, that, that couldn't really be avoided. And, and as I say, the number anyway is pretty small. So it's not a large number of children who just disappear, partly because they, they, where would they go? And if you're detained in the United States, what does it feel like to be detained by the INS? And uh, is it why is it dramatic for that child to be detained by the INS? How does, the, how does it become tangible and uncomfortable for them if it is? I think it varies. I think for some children who go to these correctional facilities, it's very uncomfortable. It's very harsh. It can be very frightening. Um, add to that the fact that in many cases, there's no one who speaks the language that child speaks. Um, so you have situations where children have not been able to communicate even the simplest things because of language barriers. And um, sometimes these kids get into trouble simply because they don't understand what they're supposed to be doing or they just become insubordinate out of, out of frustration and then they get punished. So that's, I think, one of the ways it's very hard. Um, but it's also there's a sense of being locked up. And even the less... Um, harsh surroundings, ones which really, you know, try to maintain a fairly relaxed, sort of sympathetic general atmosphere, are still perceived as being jails by the kids. You know, every door is locked and people walk around with keys clanking on their side. So kids realize that they're not free to come and go. So that, that is experienced as, 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 as something very oppressive, particularly in, in a strange country where you don't really know what else is going on in your life. Do most kids you've talked to understand where their cases are at and how they're being dealt with by the INS? No, I think that is probably the most often uh, cited complaint by the kids is that they don't know what's going on. And um, this is partly because 
a lot of the people around them don't know what's going on. It's not that the people who who are charged with looking after them willfully deny them knowledge. Um, it, many of the people who work in the in the detention facilities have actually no idea what's happening with the cases. And in recently, we interviewed some workers in some of the very harsh correctional facilities um, in Arizona. And they had no idea what happened to these children when they left, where they came from, where they went to. It was they could be housing animals. They had absolutely no idea what the process was, what the children uh, had to look forward to, what their rights were. So there really is a kind of blanket of ignorance um, which which surrounds some of these cases. Even the children who eventually, you know, get political asylums have often spent many, many months just just languishing. Who who changes that policy? I think this would probably have to be political moves and may actually take Congress, some congressional move to change this because um, there has been litigation in the past on an area related to this about unaccompanied minors, not asylum seekers, but unaccompanied minors in the U.S. And um, the leading case on that topic um, really gives the immigration authorities the power to detain children. So unless that is uh, reversed or set aside, there is the stumbling block. That was Jacqueline Baba, who's now at the Harvard Law School. I spoke to her in 2000. Since we spoke, most of the proposals that Jackie Baba brought up haven't been acted on. Children still don't have access to legal counsel in immigration court, and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, ICE, which replaced the INS in 2003, still maintains that child detention is for their own protection. In the year 2000, there were around 5,000 children detained by the INS. At the beginning of the Trump administration, that number had fallen to 2,400. Now nearly 13,000 children are being detained by ICE. Between now and the fall, when Worldview goes off the air, we'll bring you more stories like this from our 25-year run. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Coming up after the break, we'll have excerpts from Theresa May's last question time as prime minister. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Boris Johnson is the new UK Prime Minister. He promised a new golden age in his first address to Commons. Yesterday marked Theresa May's last question time as Prime Minister, and it had some sublime moments. We're going to hear some excerpts. Here is question time. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. Following my duties in this House this afternoon, I shall have an audience of Her Majesty the Queen. I shall then continue with my duties in this House from the backbenches, 
where I will continue to be the Member of Parliament for Maidenhead. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I profoundly disagree with many of the decisions the Prime Minister has made and many of the things she says. But I recognise that she does have a respect for public service and for the future of our country. So how does she feel about handing over to a man who, among many things, is happy to demonise Muslims, is prepared to chuck our loyal public servants and diplomats under a bus and promises to sell our country out to Donald Trump and his friends. I am pleased to hand over to an incoming leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister who I worked with when he was in my cabinet. as a Conservative who stood on a Conservative manifesto in 2017, to delivering on the vote of the British people in 2016, and to delivering a bright future for this country. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Today, Today marks the final day in office for the Prime Minister, and I pay tribute to her sense of public duty. Public service should always be recognised. Being an MP, a minister, or indeed a prime minister is an honour that brings with it huge responsibility and huge pressures, both personally and I'm sure the prime minister and probably the whole house would agree on those very closest to us who often are not able to answer back for the criticisms made against them. So I hope, Mr Speaker, that she has a marginally more relaxing time on the back branches and perhaps, like the Chancellor, even helping me to oppose the reckless plans of her successor. (laughs) 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 Mr Speaker... uh, Mr Speaker, if I may continue. In the... I'm glad the opposite... I'm glad the government party's in such good heart today, Mr Speaker. For tomorrow they won't be. (laughs) Mr Speaker, in the last three years, in the last three years, child poverty has gone up. Pensioner poverty has gone up. In-work poverty has gone up. Violent crime has gone up. NHS waiting times have gone up. School class sizes have gone up. Homelessness has gone up. Food bank use has gone up. Does the Prime Minister have any regrets about any of those things I've just said? Can I say to the uh, right honourable gentleman, it's very good to see the Conservative Party in good heart, which is more than I can say for the Labour Party. But let me just tell the right honourable gentleman, let me just say something to the right honourable gentleman about my record over the last three years and how I measure my record over the last three years. It's in the opportunity for every child who is now in a better school. It's in the comfort for every person who now has a job for the first time in their life. It's in the hope of every disadvantaged young person now able to go to university. And it's in the joy of every couple who can now move into their own home. Because at its heart, politics... 
at its heart, politics isn't about exchanges across these dispatch boxes, nor about eloquent speeches or media headlines. Politics is about the difference we make every day to the lives of people up and down this country. They are our reason for being here, and we should never forget it. Mr Speaker, politics is about real life. Politics is about what people suffer in their ordinary lives. And I didn't mention that uh, per-pupil school funding has gone down. Police numbers are down. GP numbers are falling. In the the, the 2017 Conservative manifesto, the Prime Minister promised that no school would have its budget cut. And that they would perfect, protect TV licenses for the over 75s and halve rough sleeping. Which of these pledges is the Prime Minister most sorry has not been achieved? I'm pleased to hear that he spent some time reading the Conservative Party manifesto in 2017. Uh, had he read it properly, he's not been known always for reading the documents that he stands up and talks about. Uh, had he read it properly, he'd have said we did make a pledge on rough sleeping, to half rough sleeping by 2022, and to f- stop rough sleeping by 2027. I'm pleased to say that in the last year we have seen, we have seen rough sleeping going down, and particularly rough sleeping going down in those areas where this government has been taking action. Jeremy I don't quite know where the Prime Minister gets her figures from on rough sleeping. All I know is that I travel around this country, I travel around this country just like other members of this House, and I talk to people who've had a disaster in their lives and end up rough sleeping. We are the fifth richest country in the world. It is surely wrong that anyone should end up sleeping on the streets of this country. We can and should do something about it. On Brexit, the Prime Minister's own red lines ruled out any sensible compromise deal. Only after she had missed her own deadline to leave did the Prime Minister even begin to shift her position. But by then, she no longer had the authority to deliver. Her successor has no mandate at all. Does she have confidence that the honourable, right honourable member for Uxbridge will succeed where she has not? Can I just say to the right honourable gentleman, I worked tirelessly to get a good deal for the UK and I also worked hard to get that deal through this Parliament. I voted for the deal. What did the right honourable gentleman do? He voted against a deal, he voted to make no deal more likely, and when there was a prospect of reaching consensus across this House, the right honourable gentleman walked away from the talks. At every stage, his only interest has been playing party politics. And frankly, he should be ashamed of himself. We've had three years of bungled negotiations and we now have the spectacle of a Prime Minister coming into office with no electoral mandate, looking for a Brexit deal that has been ruled out by the European Union or, in the case of a no deal, ruled out by the majority in this House and by anyone that understands the dangers to the British economy of a no deal. The next Prime Minister thought the Isle of Man was in the European Union and that the European Union made rules about kippers that, in fact, were made by the government that he was part of. 
He also said the UK could secure tariff-free trade through Article 24 of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, despite the Trade Secretary, Attorney General, Governor of the Bank of England, all confirming that is not possible. At the start of 2018, the... It's coming, don't worry. At the start of 2018, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister herself set up a new unit to counter fake news, charged with combating disinformation. How successful does she think that's been? to the right honourable gentleman that I, I fear that our success hasn't been what we, uh, what we wanted it to be from the amount of fake news and fake information he uses at that dispatch box. Mr Speaker, she can have a word with her successor on the way out. But let me conclude by welcoming some for today. Mr Speaker, let me conclude by welcoming some of the Prime Minister's notable U-turns over the last couple of years. The cruel dementia tax was scrapped. Plans to bring back grammar schools were ditched. The threat to the pensions triple lock was abandoned. Withdrawal of the winter fuel payments was dumped. The pledge to bring back fox hunting was dropped. And they binned their plan to end universal school meal, free school meals for five to seven-year-olds. The Prime Minister has dumped her own manifesto. Given that her successor has no mandate from the people, no mandate in which to move into office, doesn't she agree the best thing the Right Honourable Member for Uxbridge could do later on today when he takes office is to call a general election and let the people decide their future? to the right honourable gentleman is no and if he wants to talk about people ducking manifesto commitments and commitments made during a general election campaign can we remember what the Labour Party the right honourable gentleman said about student debt going to abolish student debt after the election no he rose back on that promise rose back on that promise what did he say during the general election he was committed to Trident. What does he say after the general election? No, he's not committed to Trident at all. He has broken promise after promise to the people of this country. But I say to the right honourable gentleman, I say to the right honourable gentleman, as this is the last time that we will have this exchange across these dispatch boxes. say that is the strength of our British democracy that the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition have these exchanges across their dispatch boxes every week at two swords length. Uh, no quarter is sought and none is given. And that's as it should be in our adversarial parliamentary democracy. But he and I are very different people and with very, with very, very different politicians. I think we approach the issues we face in this country in different ways. I have spent all but one of my years in this House on the front bench trying to implement the policies I believe in. 
He has spent most of his time on the backbenches campaigning for what he believes in, often against his own party. But what I think we both have in common is a commitment to our constituencies. I saw that after the terrorist attack in Finsbury Park Mosque and his constituency. And, uh, but perhaps I could just finish my exchange with him by saying this. As a party leader who has accepted when her time was up, perhaps the time is now for him to do the same. excerpts from Theresa May's last question time and last go at Jeremy Corbyn and Jeremy Corbyn's last go at her. And the right honorable gentleman from Oxbridge they're referring to is the new prime minister, Boris Johnson, who has come into office and today promised a new golden age to the House of Commons. So uh, we'll be on the lookout for the new Boris Johnson golden age uh, coming up right your way. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to hear from a path-breaking Canadian artist who's done some real groundbreaking work on South Asians and the diaspora and how they see themselves. It'll be a special edition of Worldview tomorrow. I think you'll enjoy it. Next week on Worldview, we're going to be going to the Morton Arboretum for a few days, uh, beginning on Tuesday, and we'll have shows uh, focusing on trees. Trees do a lot about climate change. That's been in the news lately. But they're also a source of spirituality and one for all of us, and we will immerse ourselves in trees at the Morton Arboretum next week on Worldview. Hope you can uh, join us for these programs. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.